Thank you for tuning in to Avant Life's weekly podcast. We hope this message inspires you, stirs your faith, and leaves you blessed. How's everybody doing? It's so good to be with you this morning. I get to continue our series on Be Better. And it's like ironic because Emma's away in Australia and she's been away now for about 10 days. I look pretty good for 10 days without Emma, right? Like, can we say thank you? I went to the dentist this week. Uh, if you know me at all, um, when Emma goes away, I have the propensity to fill that void with purchases. Like, I just buy random stuff. So I've, I've, I'm going to tell you what I bought this time because you'll judge me really bad. But I went to the dentist and the dentist is like, Ben, uh, you have amazing teeth. Oh, thank you. She's like, you actually need an electric toothbrush because there's so much teeth in your mouth. Like just the sheer surface area, there's no way you do a good job manually. You need to get an electric toothbrush. And instantly in my head, I'm like, I'm going to get the bougiest electric toothbrush. <laughs> it's like God knew what I was thinking, right? Because the hygienist just goes to me, you don't need the most expensive. And I'm like, how did she know? <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, do you have any recommendations? She's like, RLB or one of those ones. So it just needs to do these basic functions. Okay, I go straight to Amazon. And I find this electric toothbrush, I kid you not, that connects to your phone. This Bluetooth connects to your phone. Anyone who knows me knows this is a classic bed. I'm like, it's like, say no more for me, right? Like, you don't have to do anything else. It just, if it just connects to my phone, it's good enough. I'm like, oh, purchase. It comes in. This thing's amazing, guys. Like, one, it like connects to your phone, but two, when you brush, it calibrates what tooth you're brushing. And it shows you on the, f- the phone how long you need to brush those teeth for. And it goes from like this dark blue to this glistening white, and you know you're done. You know you're done. You move on to the. I know you're thinking, can't you just figure that out for yourself? No. And then it tells you how long you have left on your toothbrush, like, like tread on your tire. It's amazing. I've got 357 minutes left on my toothbrush head. It's good. It tells you how to brush your tongue. I didn't even know there was a thing with electric toothbrush. What motions to use. It's amazing. You can do different journeys with your toothbrush. I kid you not. Different journeys. Like join the journey, right? If you need gum care, there's like a three-week program you can do with your toothbrush. (laughs) I'm so excited. (laughs) Don't tell Emma. (laughs) She'll figure it out. She goes onto Amazon all the time. And she'll come back and I'll be just smiling so much. Anyway, I just had to get that off my chest as therapy. (laughs) I feel better now. Hey, if you're new to Avant Life, either in person or online. I'm Ben, I'm the lead pastor here along with my wife, but she's not here, but it's lovely to meet you. I'm sorry that was the story you had to interact with me first with, but it's good. Be better. Who's enjoyed the series so far? It's good, hey? It's so convicting. I'm like, oh, I can't write these sermons without having these, these existential crises of my own morality. And uh, we started with Count It Pure Joy when you face trials of various kinds, and that was great. And we talked about how that devotion to God would make us actually like an A-grade student that sits in the front seat, can't wait for the the exam, enjoy the trials, because it allows us to establish some sort of measure. 
to our devotion to God, and it causes endurance. Then we talked about temptation and the whole idea of the difference between trials and temptation. Trials, you're to endure temptation you should resist, and how often we endure what we should resist and we resist what we should endure. And then last week we had Pastor Jason and Amanda preach on not being just hearers but doers of the word, right? Proactive, applying it to your life, intentionality, and that you can't just simply utter it with mere vain words, but actually apply it. And I think that really ties into one of the most destructive things in church is the hypocrisy that can come from being mere listeners and confessors, but not doers. Right? No real change. And today we get to jump from this chapter one, almost condensed thesis of James's thoughts that he's about to play out across his whole epistle into favoritism. Um, and I'm excited because if you go to James 2, where we're going to be reading from 1 to 13, it starts with this title, Favoritism Forbidden. Favoritism Forbidden. Anyone see the word forbidden and think to you, like, get instantly curious? Or some people are just like, oh, don't want to talk about it. It's forbidden. Like, we don't use that word as much anymore, Right? Like, I, think, I thought to myself, if I said to Levi or answered to any of my kids' dad, why can't I do this? It's forbidden. They would be like, what does that even mean? It's forbidden. But I think as Christians and as mature Christians, the word here is not lost on us because forbidden has a very serious connotation. It's not like, hey, you can think about it and maybe you can dabble in it. It's forbidden. Like eating from the fruit of the tree in the garden was Forbidden. There's no leeway with the word forbidden. So James, he's talking about favoritism being forbidden. So we're going to read through this. It's, it's, it's a bit of a long one, but we'll get through it. I'm just going to try to get the glare off. Here we go. It says this, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but to the poor man, you say, hey, stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Verse 5 continues, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are, doing, or who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let us pray. God, this morning we thank you so much for the opportunity to read through your word. Father, we, we pray as we take this time 
as your congregation to journey through what you're teaching us, that our hearts would be open and our minds would be attentive to all that you're trying to say and do. Father, we thank you for the power of your word and how it illuminates the truth and counsel to our life. And we give you all glory and honor. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can you remember a time when you felt like you were being left out of something? Yeah? Do you know the feeling? It's worse now, like you go on social media and you see like everyone hung out one at like someone's house, but you weren't invited. Do you know that feeling? It doesn't feel good, right? Or that, that feeling when you see like people at work or even volunteers in the church, same capacity as you, get better opportunities. But it's not based on anything else but external context, right? That type of feeling. Ever been there before? I like saying that to people. Ever thought about that before? Because everyone goes back to like a childhood memory. And they're like, ooh. Where you're just like, kids are rough, hey? Like, having kids, they're the best. But watching what they have to go through as a parent is so hard on the heart. You're like, ah. So when you see your kid get rejected at a playground, you know, and you're like, oh. Like, Eden's one of the most friendly kids you'll ever meet. She's so inclusive. She's great for new kids in kids' life. She gets that from me, not from Emma. And, um... (laughs) You laugh as, like, that's a joke. (laughs) But it breaks my heart when we take her to the playground or to the beach or whatever and she tries to make a new friend and... You just see, it's, and it's not that the child is, you know, showing favoritism. They're just nervous and stuff. But you see your child go through rejection. And, and favoritism essentially taps into that same emotion, right? Sense of rejection. And it's so difficult to watch as a parent. And so it makes complete sense when we see James uttering the very heart of God the Father. Where he says, you can't show favoritism because it's so heavily linked to rejection. He doesn't want to see his kids get rejected. And so we see favoritism so much in our world. Certain people receiving treatment because of the way they look or who they're related to or what they possess. Maybe it's a part of your work life or maybe you've experienced this in church. It's definitely a part of society. It's not hard to find who's favored in our current culture and who isn't. Am I right? It doesn't take you long to figure it out. And yet, I bet there's been moments for all of us where we've witnessed or experienced favoritism or partiality and thought to ourselves, there is something drastically wrong about this. Have you ever watched that and you're like, ah, oh, I don't like that? Maybe it wasn't you that was going through it, but you're watching someone else go through it. So God has this similar disdain for favoritism, especially when it comes to those who profess to follow him. Because it's so counter kingdom culture. And so when James writes about this, he's really echoing with a sense of certainty and seriousness. And that's why he uses the word forbidden. This concept of we can't show favoritism in the church. It's incompatible with the things of God. And before we turn and break down this scripture, I want to give you some quick context. Because we just sort of spent some time in chapter 1. But... Many theologians and scholars believe that James's thesis and the statement for his whole letter is tied up in this one scripture verse we see in James 1.27. It says this, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress 
and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is essentially what James is teaching throughout all of his epistle right now. And we, we mentioned that he's not actually writing to a specific group of people like a church. What he's writing to is the universal church, church with the capital C, all believers. What type of faith does God look on and say, that's what I'm looking for? One that cares for orphans and widows. In other words, the most needy and vulnerable in society. One that keeps itself unpolluted by the world, separate from the ways of the world. Meaning followers of Jesus, as you and me, are meant to live, speak and think and act differently from the cultural norms that surround us. There should be a clear line. A clear distinction. We should be known as followers of Jesus by the way we live our lives. Then right away we see James use the issue issue of favoritism to illustrate this point. It says favoritism. It's forbidden. It doesn't fit in the paradigm of religion God accepts as pure and faultless. Why? does not show care for the most needy among us. Instead, favoritism will always show favor to the powerful, to the beautiful, to the wealthy. It's exactly the way in which the world lives and acts. The world always shows favor, special treatment to those who have. You ever heard that saying that the rich get richer while the poor get poorer? Right? The systems of this world literally feed off favoritism. Special favor to those who have while we neglect the have-nots. The big message of these verses is this. Favoritism is something we expect to see in the world, but is incompatible for followers of Jesus. If you leave with nothing today, you leave with this. It's what we see in the world, but it's actually incompatible with your faith. You might not have thought that right now. You might not have taken time to actually digest or even search scripture with this. But if you leave with nothing this morning, leave with this. You cannot be a follower of Jesus and show favoritism. Incompatible. James, through verse 1 to 13, makes this case through five really main points. He gives us the reason. He gives us an example. He then goes into the social argument followed by the moral argument. And then he ends it all with a challenge. And so that's what we're going to discuss today, those five things. And so if you're taking notes, I honestly believe that when we look at this scripture verse, it's actually more convicting than we realize because it's more entrenched in some of the the most core pillar commandments Jesus himself gave us. And that if we show favoritism, and trust me, this applies to all of us, then we could find ourselves in a very corrupt place. And is that scary how quickly our faith can be corrupted by something we thought was as trivial as favoritism? But James goes from this thesis of let's not live a life or a faith that neglects the needy and becomes polluted of the world. He's, he's got this big thesis in chapter 1 and he talks about trials and testings and being doers of the word. And the first thing off, off, the, off the mark in chapter 2 is favoritism. And it seems so insignificant to what he could have spoken about. And so when people are always like, oh, I love the book of James. Why do they love the book of James? When I say, what do you, well, I love that it talks about the power of life and death in the tongue. They always quote the same thing. But that's not where James starts. 
When James starts getting into the nitty-gritty, he goes straight for favoritism. So number one, his reasoning says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. See, favoritism is when we assign some kind of value or status to people based on mostly external traits and treat them according to that value and status system now. That's what favoritism is. We put people into categories. It might look like this. Special, worthy, worth my time, has something to offer. Different, high maintenance, nothing to offer. From Langley. I'm just kidding. The last one. (laughs) (laughs) Boom, I got you. That's been a while since I teased Langley. It's a joke. Everyone online, if you're online, I'm sorry. It's just a joke. But you know what I mean? Like, we give special treatment up here to then if someone's high maintenance or they they cost a lot of time or emotional effort, we're like, whoa, nothing to offer me. But believers must not do that. And this is why. James appeals to the very nature of God. This is his reasoning. He describes God like this, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. We're talking about a glorious God, that if he was to show up right now in all his glory, the Bible says we would cease to exist. Right? You see in the Old Testament, they, wouldn't, they don't want to look at the face of God. The glory itself would render them dead. We see with the Ark of the Covenant, Uzzah touches the, the Ark in a prayer. What happens? Can't handle the glory of God. And so this is what James is saying. He says, hey, there's only categories we should understand is glorious Lord Jesus and everyone else. There's like, that's all. He's not just giving God a really nice title and going, hey, remember our glorious Lord Jesus. No, he's making a point of it. He's saying there's only two categories. There's God, and then there's all of us. And this is the way followers of Jesus are to see people. There is God, there's our Lord and Savior in Christ, and then there is us. All sinners, all fallen short, all in the same boat together, all reliant on the goodness and the love and the grace and mercy of our God. And when we show favoritism, to certain people over others, when we put people into categories like special or high maintenance and treat them according to that category, we're not acting and we're not living in the ways of Jesus. There is a God and there's all of us. That's the only categories. And that's how he starts his reasoning in verse 1. That's his reason. There's God in his perfect nature and there's humanity in our broken, fallen, corrupt nature. He then gives an example in verse 2 and 4. It says this, Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. And if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Hey, here's a good seat for you. But to, but to the, the poor man you say, Hey, stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. This is his example. And we're not sure if something's actually happening exactly like this or if this is a, a hypothetical scenario. But we know that truth remains and this is why he's teaching it. In that day, there was two classes. There was the rich and poor. And usually that meant powerful and weak. It was common for the rich to exploit the poor so that they would gain more wealth. 
But in the church, and this is what the James is focusing on, they were being shown special treatment. They were being shown favor while the poor were discriminated against. So the rich were given really nice seats, special honor, and the poor were left to sit in the back or on the floor. Could you imagine that? Come, have the best seat in the house. Get this man a glass of Fiji water. Who are you? Are you lost? Can you sit right down there near the sign that's dark so no one can see you? That's what he's addressing, right? And James says this kind of stuff can't happen in the church. There's no place for this behavior in the church. And I wonder how this shows up in our church today. How do we show favoritism to certain people while leaving others out? Well, in certain ways, we can find ourselves celebrating particular talents over other talents. Ah, the stage gifts getting all the praise while the people who work behind the scenes are ignored. That's a common one, hey? Does it show itself in the foyer of church? Which people do we gravitate to before and after the service? Do we stay with those who we're comfortable with or we go out of our way to include those that are on the fringe, the outskirts of the community? Do we give disapproving glances to people that don't look a certain way? Now, I've got to be careful with this one because I just give disapproving glances. That's like I've got two looks, disapproving and more disapproving. (laughs) But I'm not thinking disapproving. Emma just says that's what it looks like, right? So when I wrote and I read that, I'm like, oh, I've got a smile. So I got a toothbrush. It's good. <laughs> Do we show favor to people who, who look a certain way? Now, I know we don't probably get challenged on this a lot within our setting here on the beautiful side of a mountain in North Vancouver. But I wonder how we'd go, hey? If someone from the east side who's living on the streets walked in this morning and sat next to you in all their hurt and pain, how you would feel? What would echo in your heart? And that's really what James is challenging here, hey? Is what would we do? How would we feel? We might not ever say anything. We might be bomb-proof on the outside, but irrelevant from the outside. What is going on in our heart? I think as a church, we do pretty good at this. Uh, I know we're not perfect, but honestly, we're actually pretty young as a church. And so the thought is, are we going to remain an inclusive church in the coming years? As we become more mature. Or will we become like this totally inward focused, favoritism showing people that only look for those that we can benefit from? See, there's an illusion that is a part of favoritism. It looks like we're making it all about certain people. But in reality, favoritism is not about the powerful, about the rich or the good looking. It's about what they can do for us. That's why we show these people favoritism. It's actually rooted in a selfishness. We show favoritism to those we think we can benefit from. Right? It's completely selfish. It's carnal. It's to feed the flesh. James says, 
You've discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. These are the evil thoughts. You're deciding that this person is more important because what they have and how they look and what they can give you. And you're deciding that this person is less important because they're not as popular as they need to be or they're not as beautiful. They have nothing to offer you. So you give them no time and no quarter. So in verses 2 and 4, he says, this must be different in every church community. This can't be something that happens in church. So he's given us the reason, right? Because there's two categories. There's God and then there's us. And us being humanity. Then he's given us an example. He's made it clear. He's taken a very rudimentary, simple illustration. It says this can't happen in church. And the reason it can't happen is that it's not of the kingdom. And more importantly, it's birthed out of a very sinful and a selfish place. He then takes two points. He talks on the social argument and then the moral argument. And it's really interesting what he says here. Verse 5 and 7. It says, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom? He promised those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of, the, of, whom, sorry, of him to whom you belong? This is his social argument, and, and he's trying to delineate between the kingdom and the world. And he's essentially saying that the kingdom of God always operates with a different set of values than the kingdoms of this world. In the world we live in, it's the popular, rich, smart, and beautiful who are chosen. They get the breaks. They're the ones that are favored and celebrated. And then we market on that, right? Because how many you know, products out in the, especially the, you know, the cosmetic world is designed to help you feel more attractive? Why? Because at the heart of it, there's a hope that you will be favored. And we, accept, we celebrate these external attributes. Why? Because there's a, it's so fickle, isn't it? I love that as humanity, we advertise to our humanity. And we, and we ignore the deeper values that we should build our lives on. And, and as believers, it's interesting to me how we just, so, we just partake of it. As if it has no real consequence. But it's concerning if we allow it to seep from the external into the internal value systems of our life. And this is what he's saying is the kingdom of God, it doesn't operate like that. See, he chose the poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom. So in God's kingdom, it's the humble. It's the forgotten. It's the poor. It's the outcasts who are chosen. And when you read scripture like this, you've got to understand it's not just the literal poor are the ones who inherit the kingdom, but rather those who love God and understand the absolute need for Jesus. Those who recognize the fleeting nature of the promises of the world. Those who refuse the temporal pleasures that the kingdoms of earth promise in order to grasp the eternal pleasures of God's promised kingdom. These are the poor in the eyes of the world. Those who have a heavenly perspective are the poor. In the eyes of the world. And it's in this sharp contrast to God's choice of the poor in the eyes of the world that we see James begin to approach his readers with how are you treating these people? See, God has chosen you to treat them a particular way, but you dishonor them. 
and treating them in a negative, partial way. He dramatizes it by asking three points, or three pointed questions, sorry. And I think it's interesting because when we read this, if we're naive to think James is attacking rich people, then we're going to lose what he's actually trying to say here. He's not trying to attack the wealthy. He's just using the contrast to help you understand what's taking place. He says these three things. He says, are not the rich exploiting you? Are not they the ones dragging you off to court? And they not the ones dishonoring the name of the one whom you belong? He asks these three pointed questions. And he does this to show favoritism is something that will exploit you. He shows you in these three questions that favoritism is something that will dishonor the name of Jesus. And it just doesn't make any sense. That's exactly what he's trying to show through this social argument. It just makes no sense. I'm always surprised when people are like, I just, I don't understand how this happened. And I'm like, how are you surprised that two happens when you add one plus one? Like it's not, it's not hard, right? Ever been in that situation? You hear someone like, just Pastor Ben, I don't know why this, it just happened. I said, well, you did this and you did that and there's only one outcome. This is what he's trying to say is that if you practice favoritism, then you are operating in the systems of this worldly culture, not the kingdom of God. Scary, isn't it? We measure our lives by what culture says is important and overlook the things of God and what he says is true and valuable. And we do this and it creeps. There's a creep that happens in our life and then we have a moment with God and then these behaviors creep in. See, favoritism is always going to happen everywhere else. It just can't happen in church. And that's what he's saying. Is, is not favoritism happening everywhere else and it's unhealthy. It just it can't happen here. We've got to be different. The kingdom of God, the culture of God is different. We can't have the worldly sets of values begin to rub off and make it our godly set of values. Certain people will always get respect and honor and others will be rejected. This is the way of the world. And the question we need to ask ourselves as followers of Jesus and those who call this church family home is, are we any different? Hard question. Are we any different? It's a good question to ask and I thought I'd just throw in a confession outside of the toothbrush confession. I score really, uh, you know, I did a Berkman test, and it's just, it just talks about your personality in a work context. And uh, lo and behold, we found out that I'm actually extremely introverted. Um, and so for those of you who don't know what that means, is that people empty my tank, no people, I fill my tank up. Which is weird, right? Because I'm standing in front of you, and my job is to communicate to lots of people every week and lead lots of people every week. And so my usual behavior is actually quite social, quite creative, but my needs and my stress behavior is introverted, leave me alone, one or two people, I'm good. Right? And so you can imagine 
the excuses I could give myself when I get off this platform. And preaching does take an emotional toll, right? It takes a physical toll and a mental toll. The excuses you can give yourself, and I try sometimes. Right? I just I did my job. And you see that one person you know is going to talk your ear off. And you're like, who is that? We'll take a poll later, don't worry. It's be anonymous. <laughs> it's all for science, trust me. Um, and to be honest with you, there are mornings where everything inside me just wants to go down to my office, sit at my desk, and stare off into nothing as my, my energy begins to recharge, right? And then the question is, okay, if you feel like that, what stops you from doing it? Will it be the person that talks your ear off stop you? Or will it be the person that helps contribute on a high level because they have a high capacity? And at the end of the day, there has been times, to be honest, where I'll avoid the person that will chew my ear off and go downstairs. But I'll neglect going downstairs if it's somebody who's been helpful. I know it sounds rough. I'm human. But I know if I do it, Everyone does it to a capacity, right? Everyone. And you, I know you affiliate with it. I know you feel the same in certain ways. And we all have different things. So you might be an extrovert and need to have, be around lots of people. And you don't want to be left alone with that one person who doesn't have the ability to hold a conversation. You ever met that, that person before? I like deliberately trying to be that person to you. <laughs> Hey, Pastor Ben, what have you been up to this week? Good. <laughs> How's Emma? She's good. Just to see how you go with it. It exists. Here's, a, here's one that you'd know. That person calls. <laughs> you screen that call. Yeah. You know, you all got that name came to your head. We'll screen that one. But then there's people that you always answer for. That's favoritism, right? And I tell you this not because I'm like, hey, you're a bad person. I tell you how simple it is that it gets in. And everyone has to fight this. Everyone has to resist this behavior. If we are going to show favoritism, we should show it to those our world has overlooked and excluded. That's what we should do. Because it's an upside down kingdom that we serve. This is consistent with the way of Jesus. We should be clamoring over the opportunity to show favor and grace and love to those the world has rejected. Showing favoritism by the standards of this world's culture just doesn't make sense as believers. It's counter Christ. He then brings a moral argument in verses 8 to 11. It says this, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. He's just reflecting the limitation of living by the law. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you, commit, if you don't commit adultery but commit murder, you have still become a lawbreaker. And that's the point. He's not saying you're an adulterer or a murderer. He's saying we're all lawbreakers. And it doesn't matter if you keep 90% of the laws, you break 10%, you're still a lawbreaker. And that's the problem. 
And the reason he brings this up is that we know that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which means there is a moral issue with us showing favoritism. He only takes this few verses here to make this very clear statement that favoritism not only doesn't make sense, it's also a sin. He just does it rapidly. Hey, it's not just illogical, it's actually sinful. And now he's just up the ante, right? Because he's gone socially, it makes no sense, but morally, it's now sinful. We need to pay even greater attention here. We see that Jesus once asked this most, was asked this most important question, and, and James refers to it. He says, hey, what's the greatest commandments? And Jesus responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so if we were to sum this royal scripture into two points, it's love God, love your neighbor. This is what Jesus said, love God, love your neighbor. When you and I show favor to everyone, whether they're rich or poor, when we overlook superficial distinctions and labels our culture puts on people, when we go out of our way to include people who are different than us, then we're doing right by these commandments. We're living out the royal law. That's the part of it that looks like loving your neighbor as yourself. When we do this, we've done it right. It's an easy equation. One plus one equals two. In contrast, when we show favoritism, we sin. See, we break the royal law and sin. We're convicted by this law and we're considered lawbreakers. So he's getting real rough on us now, hey? James is like, he's leading us into the hard part, the convicting part. The moment you do this, you break the law. Why do you break the law? One, because you don't honor God's character. And two, you don't love your neighbor properly because there's no love in favoritism. There's only selfishness. See, some of us might say, and we've been there before, well, hey, I give money and I serve and I do this and I do that and etc. Doesn't that sort of outweigh favoritism? And James says, you can keep all the law you want, but if you're showing favoritism, you violate the most important law of all. That's what he's saying. And therefore, you've broken all of it. This is a big deal to God. It's a really big deal to God. It doesn't make sense. But favoritism is a sin, therefore it separates you from God. That's a big deal to Him. Remember, we serve a compassionate God, a merciful God. And so when He comes and He teaches through Scripture, He's not doing this just as a rod. He's doing this because He wants to be found with you in a beautiful relationship. And He wants to guide us so that we don't make mistakes that deliberately separate us from relationship with him. And so that's what we have. We have this reason that James gives us. We have the example he gives us. He gives us this social argument that doesn't make sense. And he gives us the moral argument that, hey, it, it's a sin. And though we're saved from sin, we're not to live that sinful life anymore. So he lays out this challenge in verse 12 and 13. He says this, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. There's a caveat there. It will be shown to those who have not been merciful. 
Why? Because mercy triumphs over judgment. He's, he's alluding or he's actually directly referencing the fact that, hey, we're all lawbreakers, but it's by grace and mercy through Christ that we've been saved. So we're going to be judged by how we operate in the mercy so freely given to us. And see, favoritism does something, right? Favoritism doesn't allow us to show true mercy in all situations. And that's the challenge. There will be a day when you and I will stand before God and we will be given, sorry, we'll give an account for everything we've done. And on that day, and I mean, I truly mean this, you've got to understand the picture. On that day when you stand before God, because you know Jesus, because you've been in a relationship with Jesus, because he lives in you, you will get to appeal to Jesus for mercy on the basis of his sacrifice, his perfect love. We get to appeal to that that imputed righteousness. It's through the mercies of Christ. We're going to say to God, I don't deserve much, but I'm asking for your mercy. But James says here, how do we expect to receive mercy if we haven't shown any mercy? For to receive mercy, We must be those who give mercy. And he's reflecting what we see Jesus talk about in Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Do people come to us in need of mercy and find discrimination? Do we show favor to people based on the values of the world's culture? Or do we have the eyes of Christ? Do we see every person as one who is made in the image of God, holding infinite value? deserving of our love, service, and acceptance. In Matthew 18, we see Jesus tell this parable. And I'll summarize it. It's just this one servant owed a massive debt that he couldn't pay off, and the master forgave him. But that very servant went straight away to a fellow servant who owed him a small debt that couldn't pay it, and that servant threw him into the jail. And when the master heard about this, he was furious, and we read here in verse 33-34, shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back his own debt. All those who receive great mercy are to give mercy. This is what James is talking about. So he goes to the reason, the example, the social argument. He goes to the moral argument, which is favoritism is a sin. But he's telling us, hey, we've all sinned to a degree. And we've we've got to not live a life of sin. But in that, because we've been saved from sin through grace in Christ and been shown much mercy, then let's not be like the servant who took the mercy given to him only to throw someone else into prison. Well, how do I do that in favoritism? throw someone into rejection it's a pretty decent prison hey or marginalised or discriminated it's a pretty powerful prison isn't it when you had the choice and we've had the choice from the mercy given to us of great measure to bring freedom into someone's life by showing such mercy ourselves we instead throw them into a prison mental health, anxiety, stress, 
lead them down the path of thinking it's what they look like or how much money they have or how they dress or how they speak that actually means value, not what's going on on the inside. But then we preach a gospel of a God that looks from the inside out. Something broken about favoritism, isn't it? How it corrupts the good news of God. How it breaks it down and makes us look so selfish. Would you stand with me? I don't think James is trying to put some sort of scare tactic together, do this or else. He's just saying two things. One, favoritism and partiality are always inconsistent with the ways of Jesus because Jesus does not show favoritism or partiality. Jesus didn't come for the elite, popular, beautiful or important. He also didn't come only for the outcasts of society. He came with a message of grace and love for everyone. And so we're like Jesus when we show love and favor to everyone. It's simple. One plus one equals two. And number two, the one who understands the mercy they've received are the ones who show mercy to others. Do you understand the mercy you received? How God showed you favor when there was nothing appealing about you? If you live showing favoritism, you're showing the signs and symptoms of not understanding the mercy given to you. Which means you're not living in the fullness of God's good news in Jesus Christ. You're not living in the grace. You're not living in the sufficiency of that love and that mercy. Probably means you're living in a legalistic faith. And I really do believe this morning God wants to break that. There's no living in that. There's no true life in that. Favoritism is forbidden. And it's forbidden for all the right reasons, all the good and holy reasons. And James just took 13 verses to tell us why. And this morning as we go back into worship, I think we have to come before God with this posture and ask this question. God, where have I shown favoritism? Would you show me so I could repent? And in response to that, say, hey, Lord, would you help me understand mercy? The one I've received from you so that I can show that mercy to others. That's what we need to do in worship right now. It's not that we'd be like, oh, I don't want to break the law, so I'm not going to show favoritism. No, it's not about that. It's about understanding that there is God in His perfect, glorious nature. And then there's us that live by His goodness and His grace. And that if we just live out of that towards one another, to all people, then when we say, come as you are, we would mean it. And we'd enjoy it. And we'd welcome every person in with open arms. Let's worship. We hope you enjoyed this message. We would love you to subscribe to our weekly podcast. Other ways you can connect with Avant Life is through YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Or check out our website at avantlifechurch.com.